All right. Um, so I want to uh, we're, we're trying to move through these cycles of oracles. I'm, I'm going to actually recap a little bit of the first cycle. We only looked at the beginning and the end of it, but I think that's all we need to do. Um, uh, it, there's great profit in going through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse, but in this case, I think we're better served by looking at it in kind of bigger chunks. So remember, in we're gonna we're gonna kind of zero in on chapter 21 and and and, and following, but remember what's going on here. What's going on is we have three um, three cycles of oracles from chapter 13 to chapter 27. And if you want to think about these oracles, they're, they're a little more than sermons, but they're at least, you can sort of think of them like sermons. They're, uh, now, the reason why they're more than sermons is they contain prophetic material where Isaiah says this is what's going to happen in the future. That's not something we can do um, in our situation, but... They're structured kind of like sermons in that he has these particular audiences that he's speaking about or these particular topics that he's speaking about. But, but there are some unusual things about them in these three cycles. One, the first unusual thing, and I pointed this out last week, is that Isaiah is preaching about other nations, but he's preaching to the people in Jerusalem. So if, if, think about how strange that is if... if uh, if someone stood up and said, I want to preach about what's going wrong in China today, what the, what the Chinese nation is doing wrong, um, and why God is judging them, you'd sort of think, well, okay, but I mean, we're here, we're not there. Um, and so that's, that, it's, it's a little bit unusual, but that, that tells you something about it, which is that Isaiah knew, and the Lord knew, that by, by preaching against Babylon and against Edom and Philistia and Egypt and all the various people whom these oracles are against, by preaching against them in the hearing of people in Jerusalem, the people in Jerusalem were supposed to hear that and go, well, I'm, I'm kind of like that too. So when, when you hear about Babylon's pride, if you're, if you're really careful and you're, li- and you're really listening to Isaiah's preaching, in that time, and unfortunately, very few people did give heed to it. But but if you're paying attention and you're and you're really uh, you're, you're really submitting yourself to the Lord, um, you go they're they're being judged for pride. But you know, when I look at my heart, there's all kinds of pride there. Um, so that's the idea. That's the pattern with these oracles. And then and so the first cycle of oracles, and we looked again. We only looked at the first and the last of the oracles, but we just sort of touched on the oracles. The first cycle of oracles goes from 13.1, well, 13 through 20. It's, th- it's 13.1 through 20, verse 6, but that's, that's 13 through 20. So that's your first cycle, and, and the first cycle is all about people who, as I put it last week, aren't in the room while Isaiah's preaching. So it's about Babylon, Philistia, Moab, Damascus, and Ephraim, so that, that kind of is the northern tribes. And Egypt. So it goes from um, Babylon, and, and that's the other thing that we see, he's sort of moving geographically, where he, he starts in, um, it's going to be hard because you're in a different spot. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> it throws everything off, doesn't it? Um, I noticed that when I would teach, um, it took me a couple years to notice it, but when I would teach in college, um, you know, students could sit wherever they wanted, but what would happen is, after the second class, 
It was like locked in stone. It was never changed. Sometimes between the first and second class, they would change because they'd be like, oh, I didn't know my friend was in the class. I'll sit next to him. But, but basically, after that, over. Like, you cannot, you cannot move. Um, anyway. So, in the first one, it's all, it's all foreign nations. And, and if you think about the geography, I don't, I don't really want to draw the map. It's just discouraging to me how, how bad I am. Um, but it's all, it, it's, it's, it, bookends, it bookends the people of Judah. Because it starts in Babylon and goes to Egypt. And, if, and we've talked about it from the very beginning. Like Those are the two, always the great empires that, that Jerusalem and Judah or Israel, if you want to think of it more broadly, is always caught in between. And so it goes Babylon to Egypt and then a bunch of ones in between. Um, but the second cycle of oracles, which is what we're looking at today, it, which goes from 21 to 23, is shorter. It's a shorter sermon series, um, is kind of... Uh, um, significant because um, it starts with Babylon as well and then goes to tie ends with Tyre and we'll talk about why it ends with Tyre in a minute but but what's different about the second set of oracles is Isaiah actually includes an oracle against Jerusalem he calls it an oracle against the valley of visions right before the the Tyre oracle so in the first set of oracles, if you were really paying attention and you were really listening carefully and, and, and you know, meditating on, on God's word, you would hopefully see yourself in it, even though he wasn't mentioning, he wasn't calling you out. He was calling out Babylon, but you're supposed to say, oh, I'm a little bit like Babylon. We're calling out Egypt, I'm a little bit like Egypt. But here what he does is he actually calls out Jerusalem and gives a mix of um, correction, but also some hope. For, for Jerusalem, and then when we get to the third cycle, which we won't we won't get through today, uh, which is twenty four through twenty seven, this third cycle he gets a little more abstract, but there's a there's a purpose to it because in the in the third cycle, what he does is he just talks about two cities, the, the city of of righteousness and the city of well, he uses different words, but kind of one of the words he uses is meaninglessness. Um, so I talked last week about how Augustine picked up on this and talked about the city of God and the city of man. Um, and, and, and Isaiah sort of does that. He does these two cities. So what you realize, if you listen to all the sermon series, if you listen to cycle one, cycle two, cycle three, what he's actually done is he's kind of, he's kind of flattened out some of this geographical stuff and said the real dividing line between empires and kingdoms, um, there is... Uh, is between those who are honoring God and those who are not and are trapped in this kind of meaninglessness and chaos. And their end is destruction. And so you get to the end, and I think if you're tracking with Isaiah, in the first oracle you're saying, there's a little bit of me in Babylon, or a little bit of Babylon and Egypt in me. If you're tracking in the second one, you're saying, okay, now he comes right at us in Jerusalem. And then the third one, he sort of says, let me get to the big issues and the big dividing lines, the real two ways that there are um, for, for kingdoms to act. So that's the big overview. But what we want to zero in on is this second cycle of oracles. It's a little more enigmatic, partly because he uses some different terms to talk about, or different names to talk about these empires. Um, so the, the, the one he begins with 
is um, is is uh, is a description I, I would say of uh, of Babylon, and that I think goes through verse twelve. Um, and I'm not going to read all of it, but I just want to I just want to highlight some of the reasons why he gives some different words. He calls them Duma. He calls them the wilderness of the sea in verse one. But what he's really describing here is the um, the destruction ultimately of Babylon. So let me just um, let me read a couple of, of verses. Uh, he's talking about the 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 Medo Persian Empire destroying them. Uh, as whirlwinds in the Negev sweeps on, it comes from the wilderness, from a terrible land. That's verse one. A stern vision is told to me. The traitor betrays and the destroyer destroys. Go up, O Elam, lay siege, O Media. All the sighing she has caused, I bring to an end. Um, and he talks about this happening. And you remember, he, he used the same imagery in chapter 13 of Babylon. When Babylon is destroyed, it's going to be like a woman in labor. Like just all of a sudden, it's going to come over her and it's going to be very, very painful. He uses that same image in verse 3. And But look at what's happening while they do this. I want to particularly zero in on um, verse, verses 5 through 9. Because here's how he describes the destruction of Babylon. They prepare the table, they spread the rugs. So you're thinking of this kind of ancient Near Eastern setting, right? Where you, you roll out the rugs and, and, and to, set up, uh, to set up the tent. They eat, they drink. Arise, O princes, oil the shield. For thus the Lord said to me, go set a watchman let him announce what he sees. When he sees riders, horsemen in pairs, riders on donkeys, riders on camels, let him listen diligently, very diligently. Then he who saw cried out, Upon a watchtower I stand, O Lord, continually by day, and at my post I am stationed whole nights. And behold, here come riders, horsemen in pairs. And he answered, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. So what Isaiah describes here and he, he pulls himself into the oracle is he says that the Lord the Lord has said you should station someone to cry out to Babylon because as soon as the signs begin you should know that it's over at that point it's it's going to happen and uh, and, and, and then Isaiah sort of pulls himself in and says so I'm standing and I see it and it's going to happen and so I'm telling you fallen is Babylon now it's so it's so it's so amazing um, why, uh, that that Isaiah is able to do this, and, and because at this point Babylon was this great power, and and actually, if you had asked someone who was really savvy from a military perspective, what are you most worried about? Who, what empire are you most worried about? Babylon would have been the first one they mentioned, and yet Isaiah says, "I can see it already." I know what the signs are to look for, and I'm telling you, I'm telling everyone who's listening, Babylon is falling. Which is, again, remarkable. It's, it's sort of like what Peter describes about the return of Christ. Peter says that, you know, as, as time marches on, there are going to be people who say, where is this coming of the Lord that you've promised? You know, you keep preaching about the return of Christ, but it's been a long time and he hasn't returned. And Peter says, but you have to remember... Uh, the Lord's being patient with you. He's not slow in keeping his promise, but he, he's not wishing that any should perish. And, and also, Peter says, remember, it would be just like in the days of Noah. 
um, where Noah's there and he is preaching that, listen, here's why I'm building this ark, because God's going to destroy the earth with a flood. And no one believes it, and then it happens. And that's kind of what's happening here on a micro scale with Isaiah. Isaiah can see the destruction, and, and he knows it's going to happen, and he declares it to them ahead of time. The only parallel that I think that we can draw, because we don't have this kind of prophetic insight where we can say this will happen next and this empire will fall. We can't, we can't say any of that authoritatively. But we can, on a, on a narrower scale, say this kind of thing to, to people or even have it said to us. Where we might say to someone, look, I, I'm telling you because the Bible, Bible tells me that this is the case. That if you continue down this path, it will lead you to destruction. And even if it doesn't in this life, this life is very short. And so um, as soon as it's over, that, then it will, I mean, certainly lead to destruction. And, and so that's the, that's the way in which we can still say this today and have it said to us. And that's what Isaiah says to Babylon. You might, you might think you're, you're indestructible now. You might think there's no way you can be defeated. But I'm telling you, I see the signs. And the Lord has told me. And you will be destroyed, fallen, uh, fallen as Babylon. And he can he can declare it as if it's already happened. And look at what happens. Um, uh, look at the kind of call that he gives as the watchman. Um, the watchman says, verse twelve: Morning comes and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire, come back again. In other words, Isaiah is saying, just you can you can look for yourself. I'm telling you, this is going to happen. Now. How would, how would an Israelite um, in Jerusalem have heard that? What would that have meant to them? Well, first of all, it might have, it should have been a kind of comfort to them. As bad as we think the Babylonians are, the Lord has it all under control. Remember, that's what I said at the beginning of last week with these oracles. One of the great sort of meta messages of these oracles is that God's in control of all history. And he... he he involves himself directly in this. He doesn't say, I'm going to you know, allow Satan to do it or something like that. He said, no, I'm, I'm doing all these things. I'm destroying all these people. And so you, you should, if you're a godly Jerusalemite listening to this sermon, say, oh, praise God. The Babylonians were so worried about them. But, and I don't know if it's even going to happen in my lifetime, but God is in control and God's going to destroy them. But then as soon as you say that, you also should say, Okay, now what about me? What about what about our nation? What about the situation that we find ourselves in? Uh, are we are we very similar to them? And the answer at that time that Isaiah wants them to arrive at is yes, you actually are very similar to Babylon. Some of the things that are going to happen to them are going to happen to you. So it's a message of comfort, but it's also a message of warning because if God destroys the wicked, if God judges people for their sin, and He does, um, then. Uh, that, that's a warning to, to everyone who, is, um, who knows that. Um, so he then gives some timing um, in, in, uh, uh, in, in verse 12, basically saying, look, just as there's a morning, there's also an evening. And you know both of these things are going to happen. Then there's this very short um, oracle that we see in, um, in, uh, in verses 13. 13 um, and through through 16, an oracle concerning Arabia. And uh, this is very somewhat enigmatic. It's probably in the area of Edom. 
Um, but uh, but he simply just throws it out there. Um, basically, it seems it seems like the reason it follows is because as a result of the destruction of Babylon, then there's going to be this kind of crisis around Babylon. Kind of like today, um, we see you know there's a war in the Ukraine, but what that means is actually a crisis for all these Eastern European countries. Refugee crisis, you know, there are people who are hungry who show up at your doorstep. In fact, I was talking to a guy within the last week who was in, in Hungary, and that's what's going on, is they have people knocking on their doors, usually women and children, because the men can't leave because they're conscripted, and and they just they just need a place to stay, and they need food, and they need care for a couple of days. And it's just, so, so you'd say, well, Hungary isn't in the war. Um, Poland isn't in the war. Yeah, but they're, they're deeply affected by it. Um, and there's this kind of spillover effect of the fall of Babylon. And it looks like that's why Edom, this oracle against Edom is, is included here. Edom itself was wicked. Arabia, as it's called here, was itself wicked. But, but they're kind of getting this spillover effect of the fall of Babylon. Just something to kind of put, put in the back of your mind, although we, we don't have time to trace all this out, is that at the end of Revelation the destruction of, think of like capital B Babylon, uh, is, is uh, foretold. And, and what happens when Babylon is destroyed in Revelation is really interesting because you realize that all these other wicked systems and wicked people were kind of wrapped up in Babylon. And so while Babylon's destroyed, and that's a good thing for God's people, it just kind of rips everything apart. Um, you know, it, it's similar today to, you know, if you, if you said, well, um, look, at, look at what all these giant corporations are doing that's so, um, you know, their agenda is so against the Lord and uh, it's, it's uh, you know, they're just openly defiant of God's word and God's law and they're really, really setting themselves up to, to undermine God's law and God's people. But, but and, and we rightly, you know, see that as a, as a big problem. But then, but then if you do this thought experiment and you think, okay, but let me just think, what would happen if like every company that didn't actively serve the Lord was just gone tomorrow? It would be chaotic, wouldn't it? I'm not saying it would be bad ultimately, I don't know. But it would, it would, it would change our lives, it would change all of our lives right away. Um, and, and, and that's kind of what happens when Babylon falls. It's good. But it just it just up upends everything, and Edom is just a uh, sort of a casualty of war, so to speak. Now, what I really want to look at though is this oracle. Uh, well, let me pause for a second because I'm just I'm talking a lot. Any questions or comments up to this point? These first two oracles. There are two more, uh, both of which are important, and we'll spend a little more in depth time on them. But um, any questions about these two oracles up to or these two? Yeah. Oracles in the second cycle? No? No comments? Questions? Anything? That's fine. All right, then I'll just keep talking. Actually, can I put out a question? Please. I don't want you to answer now, but I'm, okay. I'm not so techie, so I'm not going to email it to you. Um, I was reading, and, and it talks about at the end that he will... You were talking about the map, Tyrus yeah. and Euphrates. Yeah. And that, that he's going to... You're going to be able to walk through. Mm-hmm. And the water's going to be good, so that they're going to be able to come to yeah. see him through that. So my question, and please don't answer it now, but 
you were talking about that math and talking about Babylon and that spreading, but does that have anything to do with, you talked about the topography, how we, they always go through Zion. Yeah. They always go through Jerusalem to get to each other. Yeah. And that's in the middle. Well, that, is that something that's different? How they're going to be able to go through the whole Mesopotamia area, not just around. But you don't have to answer that. I know I'm not allowed to answer now, but can I give you a short answer now? Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, so I'll give I'll a really short answer, which is, I think a lot of that has to do with topography, but, but more has to do with, more of it has to do with the kind of safety and ownership that they'll have. So in other words, getting from one end to the other, won't there won't be any obstacles in their way. Um, and so I, I think it's it's talking about a real shift on in those terms that, you know, you won't have this major uh, empire to make your way through. It's gonna be it's gonna be gone that way. Anyway, Thanks, we can sir. we can talk more. I'll, I'll, I'll try I'll try to listen to what you're telling me to do. Um, I want to look at these last two. The 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 third oracle in this second cycle is in, is called the Valley of Vision, an oracle concerning the Valley of Vision. But for a variety of reasons, as we'll see. It appears that Isaiah is working, is, is describing Jerusalem here. Now, now this is again, this is a shift because if you're used to sitting in, in, in these, sitting under these sermons that Isaiah is preaching, you've never heard him address you directly. You should have, kind of, but it's really been indirect. Now he's addressing you directly. So the question is, what is he going to say um, about Jerusalem now? Let's look at this a little bit um, closely. Um, here's what he says. What do you mean that you have gone up, all of you, to the housetops? You who are full of shoutings, tumultuous city, exultant town. Your slain are not slain with the sword or dead in battle. All your leaders have fled together. Without the bow they were captured. All of you who were found were captured, though they had fled far away. Therefore I said, look away from me. Let me weep bitter tears. Do not labor to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. For the Lord God of hosts has a day of tumult and trampling and confusion in the valley of vision. A battering down of walls and a shouting to the mountains. And Elam bore the quiver with chariots and horsemen. And Kir uncovered the shield. Your choicest valleys were full of chariots, and the horsemen took their stand at the gates. He has taken away the covering of Judah. Now, um, what what he seems to be um, what he seems to be talking about, as I said, is that um, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, and the question that we want to ask, because this is going to get to the crux of Isaiah's message, is not just that they will be destroyed at one point, but why they will be destroyed. That's what we really want to know. Um, Not just that this is going to happen, but what have we done? What can we learn from this? What's God trying to teach us through it? And this is what he's going to go into. um, uh, I'll I'll just keep reading in verse 9, but really 12 through 14 is where the Lord sort of speaks and gives his perspective. In that day, you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest, and you saw the breaches of the city of David were many. So in other words, you see that Jerusalem is being destroyed. You're looking north to see if you can get help there. You collected the waters of the lower pool, and you counted the houses of Jerusalem, and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You can imagine this image. The wall's broken down, but we're going to pull down some houses. 
kind of stuff things in, in those holes. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. You're trying to stockpile water in the city so that you can withstand a siege. But you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. So in other words, what they did on this day when they're being attacked is, and, and this is really relevant to us, because we do this all the time. On the day in which things seem to be falling apart for them, literally falling apart, um, they did everything they could. They scrambled around to strategically prevent it from happening again. Water, plug the holds, all this stuff, gather together. But they didn't do the one thing that they should have done, which is looked to God, because ultimately God says, I'm the one who did this. I planned all this. This is happening because I have willed it to happen. And you've done everything but look to me in your day of trouble. I think I've, I've talked about this before, but um, in Deuteronomy, when the people are about to enter the land, Moses gives them two big instructions. He says, when you enter the land um, and things are going really well, and you have all, everything you need, and totally satisfied, and the Lord's provided for you, your crops are coming in and everything, don't forget the Lord. Because you're going to be very prone to forget him on that day. You're going to think that you did it, that this just happens naturally, and this is what you deserve, and this is how life is, and, and uh, you're going to forget the Lord. Uh, but then he also says this, there are going to be other days where there's going to be huge calamity, and you're, you're not going to know where your food's going to come from, and things are going to happen in your family, and things are going to be difficult in terms of where you're settled. And at that time, turn, don't forget the Lord. Turn to me. Because see, it can happen in both cases. In this case, they were under attack and they forgot the Lord. The one thing I was supposed to do was pray and I didn't do it. I did everything else, but I didn't do that. And that's the problem. And so, here's what he says in verse, verses 12 through 14. Here's what you should have done. Here's what I told you to do. So we could say they didn't pray and they didn't listen to God's word. Or in our parlance in our situation they didn't pray they didn't read their bibles because here's what would have happened here's what the bibles told them their bibles told them to do in that day the lord god of hosts called for weeping and mourning for baldness and wearing sackcloth and behold joy and gladness killing oxen and slaughtering sheep eating flesh and drinking wine let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die the lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears surely this iniquity will not be atoned for until you die says the Lord of hosts. So at the moment where they had a temporary respite, so they'd been attacked, but there was a temporary little reprieve, and um, they survived that day, the Lord said, that should have been a wake-up call to you. In fact, I told you to use it as a wake-up call. Call. I told you to, to use that time that I had given you, that little extra time, and to weep and to mail, mourn and to change your life, to repent. But you didn't. Instead, you just celebrated, rejoiced, and the whole time forgot me. You forgot me when you were under attack. You forgot me when I rescued you. You forgot me the whole time. And think about this in terms of your life. You know, when the Lord, when the Lord brings challenges in your life of any kind, relational, financial, academic, uh, whatever, the Lord brings these challenges in to your life, um, the first thing we need to be thinking about is, first of all, this is the Lord who's done it, so I'm going to turn to him. 
And, and I'm going to read his word. I'm going to try to understand this in light of what he said. And, and ask him for what I need in light of what he said. And, and then, then what, if he, what if he gives you a little reprieve? What if you, what if you get some relief from that? Um, well, that's a time for you then to sort of think about it. To reflect on it. Um, to thank him, yes. But also to continue to turn to him. And they didn't do any of that. They were being judged for their sin. They were being punished for their sin. It was a direct cause and effect. And they knew it. And they didn't turn to him while they were being judged. And they didn't turn to him after he, he relieved them from it. And that's the main problem that he says with Jerusalem. It's, it's not a strategic error. It's not a military problem. It's not a resource problem. Your problems are not external to you. This is what we so often think. You know, Jerusalem thought, well, my problem is Babylon. My problem is Egypt. No, no, no. Your problem is you. Your problem is you, as how you're um, relating to the Lord. That's your problem. Babylon, it doesn't, that's irrelevant. Egypt, irrelevant. The Lord will take care of all of that. The problem is you. And so when you are judged by the Lord, turn and repent. When you are given relief by the Lord, Continue to thank him, turn to him, see what lessons you can learn. Because that's where the problem lies. It's in Jerusalem uh, herself. And, and they weren't doing that. They just kind of missed the cues every time and, and turned in the wrong direction. So um, what is God's estimation? He, he mentions two people, Shebna, verse 15, who is over the household and then he also mentions Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, in verse 20. And what does he say? What's his estimation of Shebna, who's over the household? He says, verse 16, What have you to do here? And whom have you here that you have cut out here a tomb for yourself? And who cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock? Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O you strong man. He will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into the wide land. There you shall die. And there shall be your glorious chariots, you shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office and you will be pulled down from your station. Shebna had gathered to himself a great army of chariots and also uh, what he thought was uh, that he would preserve for himself this kind of tomb that will be his lasting legacy. And the Lord says, what are you doing with your time? What... You think that these chariots are going to save you? You think that this this stone tomb that you've built is something I'm pleased with? I'm going to, I'm going to hurl you out in the middle of a field and destroy all your chariots. Because again, the question is, how do you respond to the adversity that God has brought to the city? Shebna's response was, I'm going to be strong. I'm going to build up weapons and, and I'm going to make sure that my legacy is preserved. You know, the Lord's going to destroy all of that. What about Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah? I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. And and it talks about how he's going to uh, rule over Jerusalem. Again, what the Lord says is, I'm going to flip this whole thing upside down. And the people that you think are in charge are not going to be in charge. The people you think are in charge are going to be. Now, um, let me look at one last oracle. I want to get through this just because um, it, uh, it'll, it'll kind of be a nice stopping place. 
Um, in 23, this is an oracle against um, Tyre. Now, here's what you need to understand about Tyre and why it ends with Tyre. The first or set of oracles ended with Egypt. That makes sense geographically. This one doesn't make sense geographically, but it does make sense in terms of the geopolitics of that moment when Isaiah is preaching. Because at that moment when Isaiah was preaching, Egypt is always in the background, but Egypt isn't the great financial powerhouse. You've got Babylon over here. Babylon's always a huge threat. But Tyre was the financial engine of the Eastern Mediterranean at this, at this time. Tyre was the center of finance, of trade. There is a, a set, and this has to do with complex trading patterns and things like that. You could go uh, from Tyre through the rest of the Mediterranean, even down to Egypt. You could bypass um, the land of Israel by going through Tyre. It was, it was the sea route from Babylon. You could get over to the uh, areas of the Greek islands as well. So Tyre was incredibly important financially to everybody. It was kind of, it's kind of like the thought exercise I, I uh, gave earlier. Like if all the companies that were opposed to the Lord were taken away tomorrow, you know, we'd be in, we'd have difficult time sorting all that out. Tyre is that kind of, you know, kind of hub for, for everything financial. Um, so what does he say then um, about Tyre, this other great power along with Babylon? Well, wail, O ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is laid waste without house or harbor. From the land of Cyprus it is revealed to them. So you think about the Mediterranean, um, Tyre, it's a shipping capital. They're getting things from Cyprus. Those they're able to take over to the Euphrates area and uh, and they're getting things from Egypt as well. Be still, O inhabitants of the coast, the merchants of Sidon who cross the sea have filled you, and on many waters your revenue was the grain of Shihor, the harvest of the Nile. So you're going back to Egypt on the ships. You could see the shipping lanes uh, explained here. Be ashamed, O Sidon, for the sea has spoken, the stronghold of the sea, saying, I have neither labored nor given birth. I have neither reared young men nor brought up young women. When the report comes to Egypt, there will be an there will be an anguish over the report over Tyre. So in other words, when the Lord destroys Tyre, the Egyptians are going to say, "What do we do now? We've got we don't know who to sell to. We don't know who to buy from. Our whole economy was structured on these ships coming from Tyre on a regular basis. Same with Cyprus." Um, Verse 7, is this your exultant city whose origin is from days of old, whose feet carried her to settle um, far away? Uh, 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 who has purposed this against Tyre, the bestower of crowns, whose merchants were princes, whose traders were the honored of the earth? Here's the answer. This is the philosophy of history of Isaiah. The Lord of hosts has purposed it. Why? To defile the pompous pride of all glory to dishonor all the honored of the earth. So what, what the Lord is saying is, I'm in control of all of this, and I have a very specific reason why I take down kingdoms like Tyre, kingdoms like Babylon. It's a really clear reason. And the reason boils down to pride. That's why I take down empires. Um, and, 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 uh, Tyre and Sidon are emblematic of that. 
Babylon is emblematic of that. And again, if you're listening to Isaiah, you go, well, I don't want to be in that category. I want to avoid at all costs being in that category of pride because then I've got a target on my back because God opposes the proud. Um, he opposes the proud in all things. He opposes all they do. He opposes all they're, all they're about. He opposes all the, 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 the plans they have. He opposes all of it. And, and if you want to be opposed by God, well, it's not going to end well. And, and pride is the way to be opposed by God. So you read this and you think, this is, this is serious business. And then you read back into the, what he said about Jerusalem and you realize he didn't use the word pride, but that's exactly what they were doing. Because what does it mean to live your life and to face challenges and not turn to the one who brought them into your life? What does that mean? What does that say about you? Is that a sign of humility or a sign of pride? No, it's a sign of pride. You may not be walking around sticking your nose up in the air looking down on other people, but that's the that this is worse. You know, it's, you can look down on other people, that's not good. But but you're you're basically saying, I don't I don't need to turn to God. Um, that is the height of pride. And then when he gives you a little reprieve, I still don't need to turn to God. That is the height of pride. So if you're reading this and thinking back on what he said about Jerusalem, which was very specific in some ways, you go, This is pride. This is exactly what he's taking Tyre down for. Um, and then look at how it, how it wraps up. Behold, the land of the Chaldeans. So these are Babylonians. This is the people that was not. Assyria destined it for wild beasts. They erected their siege towers. They stripped her palaces bare. They made her a ruin. Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for your stronghold is laid waste. In that day, Tyre will be forgotten for 70 years like the days of, a king, of one king. At the end of 70 years, it will happen to Tyre as in the song of the prostitute. Take a harp, go about the city of forgotten prostitute. Make sweet melodies, sing many songs that you may be remembered. In other words, in other words, after 70 years, the only people who are going to remember Tyre are people who've been told the stories of Tyre, singing the songs of Tyre. But how sad is that? You know, this once great city, and now people are talking about it. It gets old after a while to hear people talking about the glory days. And that's all that's left of Tyre at the end of it all. And at the end of 70 years, the Lord will visit Tyre, and she will return to her wages. Which you'd say, oh good, he's going to restore Tyre. Well, not exactly, because look at how he describes it. She's going to return to her wages and will prostitute herself with all the kingdoms of the world on the face of the earth. Her merchandise and her wages will be holy to the Lord. Um, it will not be stored or hoarded, but her merchandise will supply abundant food and fine clothing for those who dwell before the Lord. In other words, what's going to happen is this. Tyre is going to be destroyed, totally forgotten. Then the Lord will allow Tyre to be raised up again, to be a prostitute again. And then what will happen is actually the Lord in his providence will use Tyre and her greed and pride just to continue to feed his people as they re-enter the land. So... Again, philosophy of history, clear teaching about the need for pride, and, and a clear instruction about how, how we're to face whatever circumstances uh, the Lord gives to us. So you realize then, while Isaiah's preaching about other people, he's really preaching to everybody uh, who's in front of him, and, and, and intending even for us to see these things. I, I have a, a quote from... Um, uh, uh, a commentator, Al-Matir, about 
all the cycles of oracles. I know we haven't finished the third cycle yet, but here's what he says. And this, this will help you maybe put it in context. The whole cycle of chapters 13 through 27, these three sets of oracles, takes the principles, blessings, and warnings of chapters 7 through 11, or really 1 through 11, onto the next stage. In particular, seeking to affirm that the Lord is really and truly ruling history and guiding it to its predetermined end. In other words, um, uh, in, in chapters 1 through 11, you got these sort of meta-principles for Jerusalem. And now he's applying it to everybody, but also to Jerusalem, and applying it to everyone. And, and, and that's part of the answer to the big question that we asked at the beginning of our study, which is, if you look at the beginning of Isaiah, Isaiah 1 and, and Isaiah 66, the question that emerges is, how does this city of this faithless city become a glorious city in chapter 66? And we're seeing how God works in nations as they rise and fall because of pride in order to, to bring about this, this end. Um, I think I'm out of time because i got to get upstairs. But let me pray. Lord, we're grateful for your word. There's so much for us to learn from it. We're just scratching the surface. We know that. But nonetheless, uh, persuade us of these truths and drive them deep into our hearts that we might be repentant and humble people before you and we might trust your sovereign purposes in our lives. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.